he's like, yeah, I'm done with Jennifer Lawrence. I'm done with the character of Jennifer right. Lawrence. I ringed every last drop out of you. Yeah, exactly. I've done all I can. Go, go back to uh, to the X-Men franchise and David O. Russell and see what happens there. Welcome to the Crooked Table Podcast, where we discuss the world of film from a fresh angle. And now your host, Robert Yannis Jr. Welcome to the Crooked Table Podcast. This is Rob. On this show, we like to democratize the film criticism conversation by bringing on fans and critics alike to talk about a movie that really means something to them, that connected to them, or something that they grew up with. So in this episode, I'm joined by Jefferson Grubbs. Jefferson, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me. So you are, share my passion for movies and, uh, and sp- more specifically, my passion for the Academy Awards. So why don't you tell uh, everybody a little bit about what you have going on and uh, especially, you know, your latest project? Yeah, so I, uh, I've been an Oscar obsessive for many, many years, and I've always dreamed of having my own Oscar blog. And I finally realized that would never happen unless I just did it. So this year I finally launched my site. It's called Thin Gold Line. Uh, we went live the week before the Oscars. And yeah, it's a lot of fun. Everyone should check it out. It's at thin-gold-line. We have polls. We have reviews of us and Captain Marvel. We have very early uh, 2019 Oscar predictions up already. And uh, starting later this month, we're going to be doing a decade in review series where every month for the rest of the year, we look back on one of the years from this decade. So we'll be starting with 2010, looking back on the Best Picture winner, the box office, uh, and making, you know, best of the year list looking back. So that'll be fun. You should definitely check it out. Yeah, and that's actually like I I feel like uh, I was familiar with you from social media and things like that. I may have even been just I think I was following your your page, uh, like your personal profile. But then I saw that you had posted about starting the website, and I was like, oh well, that's a perfect person to have on the podcast. Um, you know, it was right around as you mentioned, it was right around the time of the Oscars, and I've been following that obsessively since I was a kid. Uh, mm-hmm. I think the one that I really kind of honed in on was the Titanic year, was where yeah. I you know I was subscribed to Entertainment Weekly at the time. And, and following all the nominees and who were the odds that they were going to be nominated, blah, blah, blah. And I know a lot of people kind of write off the Oscars in a way because it's like, oh, it's all the politics behind it and things like that. And yeah, that's true. But it's also just so much fun, <laughs> like the the uh, the guessing game and trying to strategize, like, who, who's going to win what? And, and you know, are these, are these nominees going to cancel each other out? And is, like, is Glenn Close going to win this, this year? Or is <laughs> not this year. Lady Gaga, <laughs> not this year. Or is <laughs> Lady Gaga going to slip in as an underdog? or whatever like you know where the films like the the uh, gaining traction or things like that so um i guess before we get into the movie that we're going to discuss in this episode i feel like well what did you think of uh this year's oscars that just passed where uh, green book won best picture and then uh it was interesting i think it's one of the only years that i can recall where all the best picture nominees uh won at least one award like even vice got i think makeup mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, that is rare. The last time it, it happened in uh, 2014, the year of uh, Birdman and Boyhood. Okay. Uh, but this was the only other time in the in the era in the era of the expanded ballot, at least. Maybe it was more common when there are only five Best Picture nominees. It's probably easier for all of them to go home with something. But yeah, definitely since we expanded, it's only happened twice. So it was yeah, it was nice to see everything go home with a little something. You know, it was a very turbulent year. I think everyone is a little relieved that it's finally over. Uh, you know, with all the drama from the Academy itself, 
to the controversial movies and the race. Um, but, you know, when all is said and done, I think certainly the ceremony itself, I think, went better than almost anyone expected it to. Mm-hmm. Uh, I actually think not having a host was great. I thought the ceremony went so well, so smoothly. It had a really good pace, you know, without having to grind to a halt to send army hammer next door with a hot dog gun. Like I, (laughs) nobody needs that stuff. And I think, I think it went great. I think what you need is really strong presenters and, and the ceremony really had that. Um, obviously, you know, Bohemian Rhapsody is our most winning film of the year and Green Book is our best picture winner. And I don't think that's necessarily reflective of the year of 2018 in cinema. So, but it is true to a certain extent that the Oscars are as defined by what lost as what won. You know, people will always remember that Brokeback is the film that was unjustly robbed of a best picture win. And I don't know if it would be as enduring of a classic today if it had one Mm -hmm. in a strange way. Do you know what I mean? Right. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, I don't know. Uh, I think, you know, five, ten years from now, it'll. this year will be one of the weird ones in history where everyone just scratches their head and go, you know, how, how on earth did Roma not win? Mm-hmm. Uh, but, you know. Was, that, was that the one you were rooting for, the Best Picture nominee? Oh, absolutely. I think it's a, I think it's a masterpiece. I think Coron is brilliant and... I mean, I would have been happy with The Favorite as well. That's that's a great film, too. It but is. in terms of, of sheer, you know, achievement in filmmaking and cultural importance, it was hard to beat Roma last year. So, yeah, after I think the day after the uh, the telecast, I, I, I did an episode of the, of the podcast, just like 45 minutes of me just rambling on about going through all the winners and what I thought of it and all that. Um, because I, you know, I, I didn't, even more than most years, I really tried to catch up with, uh, as many of the nominated films as possible. Definitely all the best pictures and acting nominees and things like that. And it was frustrating for me as well to see things like Bohemian Rhapsody and, um, and Green Book when, when movies like The Favorite, as you mentioned, Black Klansman, and I even love Black Panther, um, were, were in there. Roma, I, I need to rewatch, I think, because I did see it on Netflix, but I feel like your opinion of that movie is so uh, is so dependent on whether you see it on the big screen or not. Yeah, I, I think that. Did, did you catch it in a theater at all near you? I did. The, the first time I saw it, I saw it on yeah, the big see. screen at the Philadelphia Film Festival. I did rewatch it again on Netflix and in, in my home. I mean, I have a good home theater setup with surround sound and a big projector screen and everything. So. So that's not a bad experience either, but it, it, yeah, it's so much about the sound and the the big visuals and the, just the immersion of the experience. So, the Oscar-winning cinematography. Yeah, it's yeah. it's surface. and yeah, I'm so I'm so, I'm sorry for Glenn Close that she that she didn't get her win, but I'm so happy Olivia Coleman's win was the highlight of the night, and you know if she hadn't won, the favorite would have been the only Best Picture nominee that went home empty-handed. So I'm glad it got something. And, you know, Glenn Close will, she'll probably get her Oscar for that Sunset Boulevard uh, movie that they're making. That's what it sounds so. like, yeah. <laughs> uh, so, so, yeah, you mentioned out how crazy the, the Oscars have been this year with uh, the most popular film category mm-hmm. that was announced and then <laughs> revoked after tremendous backlash, uh, the Thank host God. thing and all that. So that this season, having been so 
such a roller coaster ride is part of you like man i couldn't have had this idea to start my oscar site last year before all of yeah. this yeah uh... <laughs> there was definitely more than enough news to cover this year uh, yeah for sure i don't know it's sort of fun to, to follow just as a spectator without it is oh for sure cover each ridiculous new development so <laughs> yeah it would have been fun to cover and it was also kind of a relief <laughs> to be diving in you know right. just in time for the ceremony itself and now I can get in on the ground floor of this coming season. And, exactly. You know, it's, cra- it's crazy to think about because, I, you know, I've done all my early predictions. But this time last year, nobody had even heard of Green Book. So I know we all have our eyes on, like, the Irishman and Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. But who know anything could happen. We still we have such a long way to go. Uh, every year, this time this time every year, we, we think we have a handle on at least a vague idea of how things are going to turn out, but but we so often don't. So that's what's so exciting about it, I think. There are so many things come out of woodwork, and w- whether your favorites win or not, it's always a wild ride. And I don't know. I just there, there are so many things about last year's race that just continue to mystify me. I don't know how Bradley Cooper did not win every Best Actor award. I just – it's – I. He, I, I don't know. It's, it's bizarre to me, and and how Tony Collette wasn't even nominated when she won every like I've never seen and wins as many critical prizes as she and Ethan Hawke did, and neither of them got nominated. Like it, it, it was a it was a weird year, but uh, you know there there were things to be happy about and things not. So well, yeah. I mean, as, as you said, with with uh, you know, regardless of how you feel about Green Book, I don't think anybody was saying you know you know what's going to win Best Picture. I think that Peter Farrelly movie. <laughs> Right, it's coming out next year. It's like what? Now Peter Farrelly has two Oscars, and I Alfred know. Hitchcock, you know, died with zero. So, jeez. So, the world makes sense. One, la- one last Oscar-related thing, and then we'll and then we'll we'll transition into the the topic at hand. So this weekend, Us is is tearing up the box office with like seventy million, and uh, you know, uh, in its debut weekend. And there's already, I think, a lot of people questioning whether. Um, whether it has a shot at the Academy Awards next year, being a mm-hmm. horror film, and you know the uh, Academy is not usually keen on genre pictures. Um, do you think that it has any? Do you think it has the? I mean, granted, it's way too early to really call it, but what mm-hmm. are your what is your kind of gut feeling say as far as the uh, the possibility that it might crack into, if not best picture, maybe best director, or even mm-hmm. especially best actress, considering Jordan Peele's history winning for Get Out and all of that. Yeah. Uh, well, I am ashamed to admit that I'm not one of the millions of people who have seen it yet. Uh, I had a crazy busy weekend and it's driving me crazy that I haven't made it to the theater yet. I'm planning on seeing it tomorrow. Uh, I did have one of the writers from my site saw it and reviewed it. Um, but I, based on everything that I've heard, I mean, in my early predictions before the movie even opened in my early predictions, the only category I had it in was original screenplay. Uh, I don't, I don't think my hunch is that it will not be a picture director, uh, play like Get Out was. Uh, I know a lot of people are stumping for Lupita Nyong'o, uh, and it would be great to see her get acknowledged, especially since this is literally the first lead role of her entire career. Yeah, which is crazy and, to think about. Yeah. Since she's already has she already has an Oscar. She's been in Star Wars, but she's never headlined a movie before. And, right? Yeah, and most of the movies she's made since Twelve Years a Slave have been like CGI characters mm-hmm. in Star Wars and Jungle Book and. All that. So it's great to see her face. It's great to see her headlining a movie. Uh, but I don't know if Tony Collette couldn't do it last year. I, I don't. I don't see any way it happens for her this year either, unless unless the Academy, you know, does turn out to love the movie a lot more than I think they will. I mean, the movie. It's not that it's not well received, but it just seems not. 
uh, it doesn't seem like it's going to be a cultural phenomenon in the same way that Get Out was. Right. Uh, so I, I could still see screenplay happening if they don't want to completely ignore it. Uh, but uh, and I, I think the sound categories and score are also potentially in play from what I hear. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I don't think it's going to be a huge above the line player. Well, I think a part of that is is too that us is also rife with social commentary, but it's not nearly as overt as it is in Get Out. And I think that really, you know, in the year in any in a time where race and all of that is even more in the headlines than it has been in years past, I think Get Out just struck at just the right moment. Um, just politically and socially and everything to catch on in the way that it did. And I think that that's probably what helped it stay in in the mix for so long. And it'll be interesting to see if Us has legs in that same way, even though um, as far as the filmmaking is concerned, it's, it's definitely top-notch and worthy of recognition. But I don't know if the Academy will view it as quite, uh, air quotes, prestige enough right. uh, to be whatever their, whatever elevated horror is, which they, I've seen that term <laughs> bandied about. I'm like, do you just mean a good horror movie? What is that supposed to mean? Um, right, right. So like, we'll Get see. Out was already, was already a reach for them in terms of genre, and that was... You know, only really only part horror. It was also part comedy and and part you know social commentary, like you said. Whereas Get Out is leaning way more heavily into just plain horror, and we all know that's not their favorite genre. So exactly. All right. Well, we'll see. We'll definitely keep an eye on Thin Gold Line for coverage of uh, if anything changes with us and its absolute chances going forward. Um, so d- just to announce this episode, we're going to be talking about. Uh, the Darren Aronofsky film Mother. So let's listen to a little bit of the trailer right now. They've come here to see me. Come quick. You're insane. You're insane. All I'm trying to do is bring life into this house. Open the door to new people, new ideas. I'm so sorry. You give and you give and you give. It's just never enough. So that was a little bit of the trailer for Mother from uh, writer-director Darren Aronofsky. So... Jefferson, you uh, you get sent when I reached out to you to do the podcast. You sent me a list of a bunch of different things, but Mother's the one that really stuck out to me, and I think it's one that you mentioned is one of your favorite movies. Um, just because I felt like it would be an interesting conversation, because my my take on the film is is much more mixed than yours is. So tell me a little bit about, uh, for listeners, I guess, that aren't familiar with the movie, what it is and why you chose it. Yeah, I think uh, the sheer fact that you can say, oh, Mother is one of my favorite movies, and people will instantly have a reaction. They'll either be like, yeah, me too, or they'll be like, what are you talking about? That's one of the worst movies I've ever seen. Tell me more. Like, that's, yeah, <laughs> right there is is exactly the reason I wanted to talk about it. Um I I love Darren Aronofsky. I, Requiem for a Dream was so formative for me when I was younger. I mean, that movie scarred me. I think it scars everyone who sees it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and obviously, Black Swan is brilliant. I'm a big defender of The Fountain. I think it's beautiful and brilliant. Uh, I was so excited when I first heard about Mother and... I remember so vividly, I was in a movie theater seeing another movie and a preview for it came on. And I'd already seen like the official trailer, but the the ad that was playing in this theater was different. It wasn't the official trailer. It was sort of just like 
a quicker little promo that said it had the tagline like you will never forget your fir- or you will always remember the first time you saw mother something like that and i was like mm. i have i have to see this movie i cannot wait everything about the trailers the music and the visuals and everything i was so pumped and and that promo was not wrong i i will never forget my first time seeing that in the theater the sounds that the crowd was making just the pure what the fuckness of it all i it was unforgettable and i instantly you know when i saw it with a group of friends and i was i think i'm pretty sure i was the only one in my group of friends who liked it and they were all like what was that and i was like it was amazing and i went home and i told my husband i just saw the weirdest movie i've ever seen you have to go and we went i went back the next day to see it a second time and uh well I I just watched it for the third time. I just watched it for the first time since theaters, actually, in, in preparation for this. I I uh, revisited it, and I just think it's so bold and weird, and the performances are incredible, and I it, it, it is. <sighs> It feels like someone's fever dream. Oh, for it sure. feels like stepping into someone else's like nightmare. Uh, I, I, I didn't know what to expect the first time I saw it. I thought I was in for like a home invasion horror movie, and it has it definitely borrows elements of that, but it goes in so many unexpected directions. Uh, it, it, yeah. Well, before I say any more, I want to hear your 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 reactions upon your first viewing too. So I think, I guess it's a testament to like, I'm not even near, I'm not nearly as high on this movie as you are. And Mm -hmm. it just, it's a testament to the, the, the statement that Aronofsky is, is making. And I'm, I'm kind of, I'm, I'm hit or miss with, with him. Like I really liked, uh, I liked in in a certain matter speaking Requiem for a Dream in that it does, Mm -hmm. it's like there, there are sequences in that kind of like this film that you're not never going to forget like uh, the montage scenes in there and like uh, the Ellen Burstyn kind of uh, hallucinations with the game show and all of that. It's like seared into my, my memory. Uh, I really love black Swan. And I was, I was not, I was one of those people that I guess didn't quite get the, the, uh, the praise for the fountain uh, and <laughs> like that. And I know, cause I have, an, I have a friends that, that love that movie. And I think it's just one that either it either hits you or it doesn't. And, and it either resonates with you or not. And that, you know, not to say that it's a great movie or a terrible movie. It's just, you know, it's very subjective. Uh, and I, and Darren Aronofsky's movies tend to be that way. Um, I have a really close friend who she and I, every once in a while, we'll talk about, when we talk about movies, we'll bring up Black Swan because she really doesn't like it. And I was like uh. praising it when it came out. I'm like, it was so great. And she's like, uh. so I'll probably have her on in a subsequent episode to talk about that. So with nice. Mother, it's a testament to the impact of, of the film that, I I was going to rewatch it and then just didn't have time. My my father-in-law is in town this weekend and everything. And um, I felt like in a way, honestly, I didn't really need to rewatch it because I remember <laughs> yeah. it so vividly. The, the, the sink's not braced yet and the whole like, the way the third act goes. And uh, obviously, you know, and, and the other thing is that this came out. Uh, OK, so September or so in 2017, I had a, a 10 month old daughter. She's now almost two and a half at that time. So the whole thing with the baby, the birth, the, oh. the birthing of the baby and all that was like, oh, my God, this is yes. kind of it was traumatic <laughs> for me who had an infant at that at point. Um, so I remember all of that very, very vividly. Um, 
and I, it's one of those films that I respect what it's, what it's going for. I don't really a hundred percent. I don't know because it's. We'll have to talk about our interpretations in a little mm-hmm. bit because there's multiple different ways to read this. And I, after it came out, there were of course a billion think pieces on this is what the real meaning of mother and this is the ending explained and and all of them felt like they had different takeaways from it. Um, you know, there's people that that see it as a biblical allegory. There's people that see it as more of a a uh, kind of analysis of like the creative process and how mm-hmm. um, you know maybe a commentary on Darren Aronofsky himself and mm-hmm. his, his filmmaking uh, and the, to- the toll that that takes on his relationships because he had only, mm-hmm. uh, he'd only been divorced from Rachel Weisz for, I think, a few years before this movie came out. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think I even remember seeing somebody noting that that woman at the very beginning kind of almost resembles Rachel Weisz a little bit. <laughs> so questioning what... And, and not to add to that the fact that during the production of this film, he and Jennifer Lawrence were kind of got into a relationship and broke up shortly thereafter. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. it's like there's all these levels to it that you're just like, okay, so is it is it Mother Earth? Is it like literally like the creation part of it? So I, I it's it's one of those films that I don't feel like necessarily is like is for me it doesn't resonate or connect with me in that same way but i admire what it's trying to do even though i'm like yeah that that's that's cool i'm gonna keep that over here and uh <laughs> and let let other people engage with it maybe more closely and like i said part of that i think is the the whole baby sequence that kind of like threw me off and i was right uh i think really turned off by that i mean if, if you make it to mm-hmm. the movie if you make it if you make it that far into this movie uh, that that's the part where you're like, yeah, I'm I'm walking out, you know, like I get yeah. people reacting to it that viscerally, just because the the film goes completely off the deep end. So, um, yeah. so what do you? So I guess plot wise, there isn't like a there isn't much plot into this <laughs> film, I guess. So uh, we already talked about why you chose the movie and and kind of your initial reaction to it. So I think for the most part, there's so much to talk about here. I think we should just jump into the review section. Um, this is two year old movie and this is not a spoiler sensitive podcast uh, ultimately. Mm-hmm. So, uh, we're just going to delve into it like full on, uh, spoilers ahead. If you hadn't seen mother, definitely check it out. You'll either love it or hate it. Uh, but either way you'll have, you'll have a reaction. Let's put it that way. Um, yeah. so, so plot wise, the, the movie is pretty, I don't want to say straightforward, but like, uh, um, grounded, I guess the first half. And it's just, he's a, you know, he's a writer trying to struggling with his, 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 uh, latest, I guess it's a, a poet, a poem. He's a, he's a poet. So I guess he's working on a book of poetry or a, mm-hmm. a poem, a specific work. And he's, uh, frustrated with that. And she's been fixing up the house. So what is your whole, um, what is your in- interpretation of the, the film, I guess, up to this point until like all all hell breaks loose do you do you buy into more of the the biblical allegory of it or 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 the um i guess i guess there's probably more than those two the environmental or the mm-hmm. uh, yeah. let's see how many how many interpretations are there and which one do you prescribe to i guess yeah uh I so the the first time i saw it like i said i was expecting a home invasion horror movie type film and uh and so I was so thrown when that wasn't really happening, and I was so delighted by how the first act of the movie, the first half of the film, is really – it's really funny, I think. I think it's underrated as a comedy. I think the, the – especially Michelle. once Michelle Pfeiffer shows up, oh, yeah. she just – choose that scenery 
and it's this whole comedy of manners and and these uninvited house guests overstaying their welcome. Uh, I I wasn't really looking for the allegory my first time through. I was sort of just on this wild ride, and I saw I saw it like opening night, so all the think pieces hadn't really come out yet. And then I read a little bit more before I went in for my second viewing one or two days later. And so I knew to be looking for the biblical allegory that time. And, you know, the first time through, you know, I did pick up on the themes of like creationism and then the, you know, death and rebirth and all that. But then right. once I knew to be looking for the biblical allegory, yeah, it's it's really there. And then especially my third time through, I was like, oh, yeah, this is just like a literal retelling of the Bible, like beat for beat. You have Cain and Abel God, and all of that, yeah. God, God and Mother Earth, and there's the Garden of Eden and the Forbidden Fruit and Adam and Eve and then Cain and Abel and then the flood that drives all the people away. And then right. and then they gradually come back and, and start destroying the planet. And then he sends his son and they kill his son. And, and then, yeah, then the ending. <laughs> um <laughs> It's so, so there is that, I mean, but, but in, in some ways the biblical interpretation is the least interesting, I think just because it is the most blatant. I agree. Uh, Like that is, that is the framework in which the movie exists, but I don't think that's really the point. Uh, Like if that's the deepest you go in the analysis, then that's, uh, that's the, that's the most surface level. I think I, I'm more interested in, in like you said, the the allegory of the creative process that you mentioned, with him being a poet and and the toll that that process takes on on a person and more importantly on the people around them. Right. And uh, I and I think it's full of angst about our planet and the state of of the planet earth and what we're doing to it and what it's going to do to us. If we keep treating it with such disregard, the film really feels like a primal scream, you know? And, and he, he said, he said in interviews that he wrote it in like, it came to him almost in a dream and he wrote it in like one weekend, you know, and some people, yeah. yeah, Some people are like, Oh, well that makes sense. Cause because the movie's bad and it feels like it was written in three days. But I, I, I find that so interesting when uh, a writer is so struck by an idea that it just like pours out of him. You know, it, it's so one thing that I find so interesting about the film is that it strikes such a balance between utter chaos and utter control. Mm-hmm. Uh because the story and the emotions behind them are just chaos. Everything that's happening on screen and the plot of the movie is is chaos, but the movie itself is made with such control. Like the technical aspects of the film, I think are stunning. I think it is legitimately ridiculous that it was not nominated for Oscars for the cinematography, for the production design of that house, for the sound design of that house. I, I, the fact that this film won Razzies and not Oscars is one of the biggest crimes of cinema of like the past decade. I think I, 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 it's the craft of the film is so meticulous in service of these chaotic emotions in a way that 
Wes Anderson has never appealed to me as a filmmaker. I know that's going to be blasphemous probably to some listeners, but I, I can never get on board with Wes Anderson because everything feels so controlled Right. that there's no, it's, it's so precious in a way because it's so controlled, but there's no spontaneity. And to me, like joy, joy comes from spontaneity and without room for any spontaneity i find so little joy in wes anderson movies they're they're so cold and removed to me well his movies uh, are, are also basically always screaming out like look isn't this he always like like he's gonna stick his head into the frame but like look look how whimsical this all is see how the colors exactly. everything's symmetrical yeah i know i get it yeah and like looking at at a frame from the film is they're beautiful but it's like looking at a painting right uh and and to me, Mother has the same level of control of its craft, but in service of uh, an experience that actually is interested in provoking emotion. Uh, and, yeah. <laughs> it's almost the way, you know, the fact that he, he did, like, bang this script out in a week or so, it, it almost feels like the uh, the biblical allegory was, I think you even mentioned this, was it's just basically a framework. Like, he put that in there to, I don't know, to, to give, to, to, as a, to provide a surface level structure to it. And then really had so much more to say baked under the surface. Like, you know what I mean? Like, it was, it was designed to be the easy read of the movie. Um, right. You know, it just to reward repeat viewings or just to make them experience that much richer for for people that were willing to dig into it. Um, I also think the the cinematography in here is really is really Ugh. impressive because it's just it's all like it's all I feel like it's all super close ups on Jennifer Lawrence because it's su- it's such it's so closely told from her perspective that it's just swinging camera movements of her looking around yep. at, at everything happening. And again, I haven't rewatched it since theaters, and I'm going off of memory. That's how how I, much I remember all of this, um, or like in, intense like close-ups, just right on her on her face yep. as she's dealing, as she's processing everything that's happening around her. Um, it, it, it's her performance. It's interesting that she didn't really get a lot of attention for this role um, because she has been such a such an Oscar darling up to this point. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, she even got nominated for Joy, which I really didn't care for that much as a film. Right. Uh, to the point where it was, you know, she puts a film out there and they were like, oh, we got to nominate J-Law. Um, but I, I, and this wasn't and this wasn't a poorly received movie either. This I just checked the sixty nine percent on Rotten Tomatoes, so like it was mixed, but. Uh, the people that love it, like you, they loved it. Like they were really mm-hmm. about it. I saw. I know a lot of people that had this in their top ten for that year. Yeah, you're right. It wasn't as poorly received critically as maybe some people remember. It was. If we want to talk about reception, though, that it got that infamous F cinema score. I mean, well, uh, not surprised. I mean, <laughs> what no, do you but I, I do. I do have to give. Uh, what was what studio released it? Uh, oh, Paramount. I do have to give Paramount uh, credit for releasing it wide. I mean, that is so crazy. Mm-hmm. And maybe it was a huge mistake because it's not really a wide release movie. No, but. I mean, I, I saw that film in the multiplex that I'd go to to see Marvel movies. Right. You know, I didn't see it at our local little uh, indie theater where I go to see most Oscar films. You know, it, it played. There was a Marvel superhero next door and then Darren Aronofsky's mother. And, yeah, that did result in an F cinema score because wider audiences were like, 
what is this? Right. But I mean that I, I think it's so cool to put a movie like that out there for everyone to see it. it it's so original and and I mean even that F Cinema score you know made people want to go see it. They're like what is this thing that is you know stoking such controversy. So I do have to give Paramount props for its release strategy. Yeah, I mean it certainly makes a statement either one way or another and it's interesting usage of Ed Harris and Michelle Pfeiffer. Uh, just mm-hmm. these like character roles that are that you know because they're big stars and and uh, Oscar nominated uh, I think Pfeiffer has one actually uh, actors to have them in here where they, their role is basically just in the first half of the film kind of to serve the the uh, the greater uh, journey of, uh, of mother and that's the other thing how how blatant the allegory is for this film like none of the characters even have names if, uh, if you look at like the th- right. synopsis of it it's all man woman him mother mm-hmm. it's like no. Nobody has, so it, it's. Um, he wasn't even really trying to tell a story, like a plot-driven story. I think that's. Uh, it, right. It's a really. It's an approach that let's, that most moviegoers are not going to be receptive to. So yeah, I think in in hindsight, Paramount was probably kicking themselves and like shit. We should have just like rolled that out little by little and like played <laughs> to the markets and see if we could build buzz. Because I remember even back in the day, like Chicago, which went on to win Best Picture, was mm-hmm. showing up little by little, like 500 screens, 800 screens, you know, something like that. And uh, I think that would have made a lot more sense for Mother. Um, so what do you think about uh, Jennifer Lawrence's performance? And I think there was even, I think I even heard like some people afterwards, like on Twitter being like, uh, with a, a, more of a misogynistic read of the movie, just because this, mm-hmm. she like get, gets battered near to near death by the end of the film. Uh, right. What are your take on that? Yes. I, I think she's incredible. I think it's, if not her best, it is definitely one of her two or three best performances um, and I, she really, she carries the movie. Like you said, she's in every shot, literally every single shot is either, uh, extreme close up on her face over her shoulder or from her POV. Yep. The, 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 those are the only three shots used in the entire movie. It's composed of variations on those three shots. And, uh, she, it, it, there's such an interesting arc to her character, uh, which I was really paying attention to this most recent time I watched it. She's so reserved at the beginning and so domesticated and quiet and just brewing tea for the men and fixing up the house for her husband. And by the end, she's just so primal and unleashing all fury and it, it she just got the range on display in her performance it's like from zero to 11 mm-hmm. and it, it's really remarkable and um i do think i you know i'm familiar with the allegations of misogyny like you mentioned but i, I don't know i don't think depicting that is endorsing that yeah it's uncomfortable it, Definitely the sequence of her getting the shit kicked out of her and called all these horrible names is definitely probably the most uncomfortable part of the whole movie. But, I mean, that's... It's by design. It's not glorifying it or anything. Right, right. That's really the point. That's the point of, of the movie at which he's, like, reaching his thesis about this planet and our horrific treatment of it and how it's going to literally blow up in our faces and uh, it's that moment is so full of despair and and fury, and I, I can't imagine watching it and and thinking, 
oh, like Darren Aronofsky just like wants to beat up women. Like that's not that's not the point. You're supposed to feel uncomfortable and horrified. There's something to be, you you know you mentioned about. Uh, we, we've, obviously, we've talked a lot about the allegory of the movie because that's again kind of the point. Uh, I mean, they literally they like make love, and then the next morning she's like, "I'm pregnant." So I, I'm not <laughs> supposed to take this at at face value. Um, and I, right. there's something to be said for literal storytelling versus metaphorical storytelling or allegorical. And and the you know that's why I the F cinema score doesn't not surprise me in the slightest. Um, just because if you're not willing to go along with this movie and what it's trying to do. Um, you, you know, if you're fighting it the whole way through, you, you're not going to enjoy it. You're not going to see the the uh, the thesis, that you, as you said, that that Aronofsky's trying to get toward here. Um, so, yeah, it's it's a, it's a tricky one. Um, I, I I agree with you that I don't necessarily think it's misogynistic. I can understand that read, um, but it, it really is just at that point, you know, the the. It's it, they have the overarching uh, motif, I guess, of the the sink, and people keep going, mm-hmm. leaning on it, or sitting on it, or making out while they're like jumping on top of the sink, things like that. <laughs> and I, um, I I think that's that's a really clever device to to track her uh, her frustration over the course. I mean, yeah. you know, first it starts with an uninvited guest, and then two, and then there's a whole family, which, how random is it to see Donald Gleason just in the middle of this movie? I, <laughs> I, I had no yeah. clue he was in it. I don't even think, he's not in the trailer whatsoever. They basically, in the trailer, just show you this mysterious older couple that shows up, and then chaos right. ensues. Um, so and his think, brother is played by his real-life brother. Yes, yes, that's right. Um, yeah. But the the sink really, I think, is is the way that he tracks her her growth and her uh, kind of um, ongoing sense of agency over the course of where she's just like, oh, do you mind? And then by the end, she's like, get off the, you know, she's like freaking out about yeah. the sink, and uh, of course, it leads to everything going uh, going berserk, the flood. Yeah, exactly, literally the flood. Um, and you can write, you can re- relate that directly to you know, Sodom and Gomorrah and all like, like everything escalating humanity is escalated to a point that, that God is literally, all right, I need to wipe off. We wipe it off and we'll start over again. Um, Mm -hmm. so, so what do you think about, well, Javier Bardem is great in this too, but again, he's great in everything. Um, Mm -hmm. what do you think about the way that things turn after the, cause is it after the flood where, that's where it just doesn't even attempt to make any kind of narrative sense anymore whatsoever. And it's just like people are just randomly showing up and uh, Kristen Wiig is there for some reason. <laughs> yeah. Talking about random appearances. She was hilarious. What a delight. <laughs> but it's just perfect was... cast. It's perfect to have someone yeah, like there in there because, you know, you'll have a dream and you're like, yeah, you and I were over here. And then Kristen Wiig was there for some and reason. She was shooting people execution style <laughs> yeah, and then she exactly. got blown out. Like, yeah, oh it God. feels like a dream. Absolutely. And uh, yeah, you just, you, you just triggered a memory in me of, of the first time I watched it and the feeling of how quickly things get out of control in the second half of the movie. And yeah, so, so she, everyone gets driven out of the house by the flood at about the halfway mark, things kind of reset, she gets pregnant. And then the second half of the movie starts and things get so crazy so fast and, and what that reminded me of the first time I watched it was, do you know how, have you ever been to like a natural history museum and on the floor, there will be like a little chart of like human history or the, the history of the planet. 
-hmm. laid out, you know, in proportion to time. And there's such a long time, like just the planet exists. It was, it was formed and then nothing. And then the first, you know, single cell life down here. And then you get to dinosaurs close to the end and then they're gone. And then all of human history is like a sliver, you know? Yeah. At, at the very end of the timeline. And and that's how quickly we've come and spread across this planet and basically wrecked it beyond repair. That's like and that's the arc of this movie to me is like it starts slow, things get a little crazy, there's a little explosion of life around the middle, and then and then it sort of dies out again. And then all of human history happens in the last, you know, right. 15 minutes of the movie of a two hour movie. And it sort of, it maps that arc to me, which I think is, is a really cool idea and executed really well. Uh, you could it, also, it just, go ahead. No, go ahead. You. I was going to say, you could also see the, the flood and then the, the death of the baby as sort of signifying to go to the biblical thing, the mm-hmm. old and new Testament, that the fact that that happens halfway through and in the narrative mm-hmm. shifts. Um, and I also was thinking about back going to going back to the roller coaster. Uh, comparison that it's like ratchets up, click, 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 levels out, and then woo, like that yeah. free fall down, <laughs> like super steep, just like what the hell is happening? Um, you know, the uh, onslaught of uh, violence and uh, just chaos. And uh, I don't know, I keep going back to the word chaos because I don't know how mm-hmm. else to describe it. And I, I, I really need to go back and rewatch at least that last sequence just because you know that there's so much significance built into every single detail of that, uh, of that, just as far as the environmental message is concerned and, and uh, the larger, you know, larger interpretations that we've mentioned. Yeah. And I think there's just, there's something so true about this movie in the way that I think, I don't think I'm wrong if I say that most of us go about our lives these days with sort of just a base level of anxiety underneath everything, Mm -hmm. you know, about the direction of our country, about the state of our planet, you know, especially if if you're having children around now, I don't know if this is something you thought about when you were having a kid, but like, what, what kind of world are we, are we bringing children into? Is it still going to be here when they're old? (laughs) You know, when is the world going to end? Well, well, my daughter, my daughter was born December, 2016. Literally my my wife was going to give birth like two weeks after the election. So yeah, (laughs) that was very much in our mindset as far as, uh, you know, where that was, where we were going to go the next four years and beyond. Mm -hmm. I think this movie gets, it taps into that primal fear that's underneath all of us in the, in the way that, that she taps into that primal ooze underneath the house at the end, you know, and I, I felt very similarly, uh, this past year, this is going to be a really weird comparison maybe, but I got a lot of the same feelings out of first reformed. Mm, yeah. Uh, oh, yeah. I could see that. that. Yeah. That film is also all about the anxiety of the future of our planet and concerns about bringing new life into this planet, given the state that it's in. Uh, They're both, they're very similar thematically. And whereas Mother is sort of the chaotic, fiery, 
version of that feeling. First Reformed is the more controlled, icy version of that feeling, but they they both have that same primal scream feeling to me of of these filmmakers, these writer directors, just having such anxiety about the state of the world and the only way they know how to deal with it is to put that that fear and anxiety and anger and everything on screen. Yeah, Paul Schrader just literalizes it basically and has mm-hmm. Ethan Hawke vocalize those themes whereas Aronofsky bakes it into multiple layers of interpretation and uh you know analysis and you know you have to kind of do a little do a little more homework and challenges Mm -hmm. you to think to try and uncover some of that uh which ultimately is why i I admire the movie even if i don't Mm -hmm. necessarily walk away with it being like that's a masterpiece uh you know so i i sort of alluded to this earlier but the scene with the with the baby and uh the way the way that the baby is born and then he um it, it really comments on on I think the ego of the creator because mm-hmm. you know whether you're a poet whether you're a filmmaker or a writer or a podcaster um, you're you're ultimately saying I have something that I want to say and you need to hear it you all need to listen to me so there's an mm-hmm. ego level of that too that I think really plays into this movie which is why as a creative person myself I find the the movie and Javier Bardem's character is sort of a, an analog for Aronofsky's the the most mm-hmm. satisfying like that's the one that i find the most interesting it made me want to come home and like really hug my wife and be like i appreciate everything you do <laughs> the family i hope you know i know i'm hard to put up with sometimes and blah 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 because it's really kind of a uh, a wake-up call to the toll that it can take when you're a creative person on the people in your life where literally she she helps him birth a, a new project i mean the baby the pregnancy inspires him to finish his his work and that, you know, brings all the adoration of fans and then and it raises all kinds of questions of like, well, are, isn't his family enough? Why is he, you know, kind mm-hmm. of trying to please, uh, you know, outsiders as opposed to his wife and then his baby? And then the baby becomes like a prop for him to be like, look at look at my child and, you know, adore him. And of course, right, it's an extension as, of him. <laughs> exactly. And as is the way of, you know, especially now with social media and and uh, outrage culture and everybody's pissed about everything, you know, um, they they literally tear it apart. They tear the yeah. baby apart. They first, the, oh God, yeah, and consume it. They consume it. They're, they're they're just there to be like, all right, you know, you can. And as a, a pop culture person who's obviously big into movies and things like that, you'd be like, all right, you know, um, uh, I'm trying to think of uh, an analogy here. Let's see, uh, Paul Feig Ghostbusters, or mm-hmm. you know, Ryan Coogler of Black Panther. He's like, I made this movie. Go and check it out. And then some people are like, I love it, and break it down and analyze it and reap the benefits of writing articles about it and making podcasts about it and consuming it that way. And then other people literally are tearing it apart and being like, oh, this is bullshit. It's so overrated, blah, blah, blah. Um, but that that image is the one that really sticks with me the most, the baby being carried away, the neck snap especially, mm-hmm. and then Oof. the cannibalization literally after. Yeah, like I said, with yeah. a 10-month-old at home, I was like, Jesus. Uh. Yeah, there's something interesting there about who art belongs to. Once you deliver it into the yeah. world, it doesn't belong to you anymore. It's out of your control. Other people will consume it. If you try to reclaim it, they will tear you apart. Like people, people have, people feel such ownership over the art that other people create, you know, like 
And I'm guilty of this too. I mean, it's it's a natural feeling right. that, uh, for example, uh, game, with Game of Thrones, you know, or w- more accurately with A Song of Ice and Fire, people are so mad at George R. R. Martin that he hasn't finished it. They feel entitled to his work in a way. They feel like they've entered a contract with him and he has broken it by not following through. Mm-hmm. Uh because one, like I said, once you deliver it into the world, it's not yours anymore, you know. And whether that's true or not, or, or right or wrong, it is sort of behind, beside the point. That's just that, that's how art works. Once it's put out into the world, it's no longer completely under your control. Right. I mean, the Last Jedi is the example I should have used instead of Black Panther. <laughs> that, that would have been a much more uh, more apt uh, version of that divisiveness, which now we're seeing in in everything. And um, yeah, I mean, it's uh, it. I think it feels to me like in a in a way celebrating the creation of art, but also as sort of a cautionary tale of just you know be aware, t- temper your creative efforts with. You know, appreciating those around you and your support system, things like that. So that's why I was kind of inspired by it to come home and be like, yeah. "Hey, let, you know, let me do the dishes tonight, honey. You, you worked it long <laughs> enough. I don't need to like write that article right now or whatever." Like, you know, kind of tempering and finding that balance because when you give yourself so completely over to something that you're blind to everything else around you chaos can ensue it could wreak havoc on your personal life now whether that's what happened with Aronofsky and his marriage to Rachel Weisz or his relationship with Jennifer Lawrence which again is kind Mm -hmm. of blurring the the lines of art and reality which in a way is kind of makes this movie feel that much more powerful knowing that the director was in a relationship with her at the time because she's he's literally like wringing her out like for her for her talent for the screen in this movie to be like right. okay now we, and then the movie and movie ends with obviously spoilers ends with her giving up the the crystal and like basically her heart her essence to him mm-hmm. and then the movie comes out and then they break up so yeah i i thought all that that interpretation i think really ex- excites me uh, it's just it's just it's a hard it's a hard movie to watch, <laughs> especially like yeah. I said for for the last the last act and the the way that that all plays out. But you have to you have to admire the the balls he had to put this movie out there, um, especially knowing that we're in a very you know I love and I love Marvel movies. I talk about them a lot on this show, and I love all the you know the big blockbusters. Not all of them, but I love some of them, um, the good ones. And I think. <laughs> we're in such a homo- like the industry has become so homogenized in a lot of ways we're like all right disney is gonna disney just let I me mean, perfect example disney just bought fox yep. and now yep. only i think like 40 percent of the market share of of you know i don't know if it's cinemas or like film or what the deal is there but they have a tremendous market share now of the entertainment the media that we consume to the point that you know every i, I love the mcu but every marvel movie is you know whether it's good great or terrible whatever they all have a they all feel the same in some way or another even black panther or captain marvel the ones that try and have more of a social statement and try and be more distinctive they still feel like marvel movies i can't think of a movie mm-hmm. that feels like this movie you know it's it's right. it's it, it it's it has that that originality and that uh that distinctive vision behind it that we don't see in studio films. I mean, look, we're getting uh, Dumbo, Lion King, and Aladdin again, all for some reason. Uh, even though, you know, we've all seen those stories a million times. Uh, I'm already it, tired. It, exactly. I know. Oh, my God. 
plus not to mention another toy story i mean this is like this is the this is feels like the year between not to harp on disney so much but with the disney fox deal closing the fact that they have all these high profile releases coming out this year plus the launch of disney plus this feels like mm-hmm. the fulcrum point where from this point oh, forward it's disney's world the disney world literally and we're just living in it <laughs> you know yeah, we're in the uh, world they're, they're of cloud atlas uh, we're yeah. in the far future timeline when every single movie is just referred to as a Disney. I love Cloud that's what Atlas. they call. Them. Yeah, that was a, that's and an I interesting really movie too. In that yeah, that would be an interesting conversation too. I also love that movie. Yeah, I'll, I'll, to, I'll, I'll note that for a future podcast then for definitely. Uh, because I think the Wachowskis are another one where I was just talking to my father-in-law about this last night. I didn't love Jupiter Ascending, but I. I you know, even anytime they come out with anything, I'm going to be there because there's nothing like there's nothing quite like the Matrix or Cloud Atlas or, uh, you know, going back, even something like Bound. Like they have a very distinctive voice uh, as filmmakers. So that's, it's, you know, something like even something like Speed Racer, which is ridiculous and candy coated and all that stuff like that. Nobody makes a movie like that who would make that spielberg wouldn't even make that and spielberg is you know often cited as one of the best you know biggest blockbuster filmmakers of our time and all that so uh, i i'm definitely still on board for whatever aronofsky does next just because i want to see what what he has to say Uh, whether i'll love it or hate it is kind of immaterial uh i'm invested in his career at this point and um you know it's I, I mean, I understand why this film underperformed. It made like 17 million off of a budget of 30, um, but it's also kind of disappointing. And um, right, like, like people are always fretting about the the disappearance of the mid-budget film. Right. You know, everything's going to be a blockbuster or like tiny, no-budget indie, and there's going to be no in between. And then a studio has the balls to release a film like this wide and people don't show up to support it. I think it's a shame. Which is, which is also why it's fitting that we're talking about what is essentially a psychological horror film. The weekend that us is another psychological, another original psychological horror film that just came out and made 70 million, which is the highest uh, opening weekend for any original horror film in cinema history. So there are, there are those little fragments of, uh, success stories of films that come out that aren't based on a comic or a novel or you know a television show or right. whatever. So, I have I have faith that those those still exist. It's just yeah, it's people need to seek them out and and uh, give their money, uh, you know, send their money in that direction. And it's unfortunate that mother uh, mother didn't you know I guess make its budget back domestically. It it is it has only been a couple years, but I do already feel like it is achieving cult status quite fast. Yeah, and and I do think that the success of us and and the relative failure of Mother, you know, speaks to our uh, speaks to you know expectations and what happens when they're subverted or not met. Like mm-hmm. us ex- clearly exists within the framework of horror films and has all the trappings of horror films. And yeah, it's really psychological and sort of tapping into Jordan Peele's own psyches and insecurities and fears the same way that Mother did with Darren Aronofsky. But he's playing within a recognizable sandbox, mm-hmm. whereas people just had no idea with with Mother. When you completely defy expectations like that, and maybe that's the fault of, of the marketing when they made it, you know, look like a more traditional horror movie than it ended up being, mm-hmm. it, people people say they want unique 
and they're tired of movies that all feel and look the same. People complain about the Marvel style, but then when something defies categorization to the extent that Mother does, it's also people sort of rebel against that as well. Right. So yeah, it, I, I definitely, I definitely think that Paramount didn't really didn't really know how to sell this. And I mean, honestly, I, I, I kind of don't blame them. I don't, wouldn't even know. I wouldn't know how to begin trying to appeal to casual moviegoers with this film um, just be, because it is so, so different. And that's both, you know, ultimately I think that's both its, its strength and its weakness. Absolutely. It is, it is tempting to fit it into the box of, Oh, biblical allegory, like we mentioned before, right. but I think there is, is so much, more to the movie that defies explanation as well. Like I, I've seen it three times now and I still don't feel like I have every answer. Like what is the yellow powder that she drinks? Like there, there are, mm. there's so many, there's so many layers and so many mysteries. And I, I think you could think about it and discuss it and watch it m- multiple times and still not tap into everything. And, and so I think to dismiss it as so easily explainable is, is a mistake. Uh, and yeah, I'm glad we've had this conversation. We've we've talked about things that I hadn't talked about before with the movie, and and I'd be interested in. Ta- I'll be interested in talking about it for years to come with with other people and and watching it again. And that's what I love about it. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Uh, so there you have it. I I think if you haven't if you've seen Mother and you're listening to this, uh, check it out again. It's it is streaming on uh, Amazon Prime for people that you know, that, uh, want easy access. Uh, I would definitely give it a second viewing. I, I honestly, after this conversation, I probably will now make the time to go back and watch it again because I'll, I'll, uh, be, have, have the hindsight of, of, you know, every, all the interpretations. Cause I watched it before I, all the think pieces came out. I think I may have even seen it opening mm-hmm. weekend, uh, locally at least. And, um, yeah, so I'm definitely interested in, in revisiting it and digging a little bit deeper um, into what Aronofsky has to say uh, with this one. So, um, Jefferson, what do you? why don't you tell people uh, a little bit where they can find you as far as social media and things like that? Great, yeah. Uh, check out my site at thin-gold-line. Uh, you can follow the site on Twitter at awardstgl, and you can follow me personally on Twitter at Mr. Screen Addict. Thank you so much for being on the show. This was a great conversation, and uh, I'd love to have you yeah. back on at some point, maybe to talk about Cloud Atlas I, uh, or yeah, something of that nature. There's, there's a lot to dig into that as well. So, Yeah. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's a pleasure. Absolutely. Thanks, Jefferson. If you're interested in joining me on the show to chat about one of your favorite films, head on over to crookedtable.com slash guest. Or you can consider supporting the show at patreon.com slash crookedtable. Of course, you can always find more podcasts, reviews, videos, and other movie-related goodies over at crookedtable.com. Until next time, this has been the Crooked Table Podcast, and I've been Rob. This has been a production of crookedtable.com. All rights reserved. Z-R-O-O-K-E-D. 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 Z-R-O-O-K-E-D.